1: CEO of
0: CyberFence.
1: In this week's tech news, AWS or Amazon Web Services is holding their annual conference in Las Vegas and they've made a number of announcements. Two of the most prominent the first is that they're offering satellites as a service. And before anyone thinks they can go out and rent their own satellite through Amazon, they're actually enabling satellite service providers in using their Amazon availability zones by putting ground-based stations tied to their data. The second announcement is that Amazon announced that they're doing blockchain as a service. And we do a lot of blockchain shows. We still think people get confused between when they hear Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, but blockchain as a technology is gaining more and more momentum. Amazon announced that they're already capable of interoperating with Hyperledger and that they're now working on interoperating with Ethereum. I'm sure there'll be more news on that. Cryptocurrency in video games. So another announcement is that a good use case or what people, designers think is a good use case is using uh, cryptocurrency for in game assets. So if you're imagining in the a little while ago World of Warcraft and the digital goods that are available, so you might have a unique weapon or shield or something like that. The fact that you can now trade with digital currencies makes it uh, more secure and reliable. There was $175 million worth of digital assets traded on blockchain in-game currencies for video games this past year, and they expect that number to just increase. There's over 2 million users already participating in these games with digital currencies. For all the Bitcoin holders out there, just after last month, we announced that Bitcoin had been the most stable asset class of 2018. It had a really rocky um, following weeks. Bitcoin went below 4,000 and people thought Bitcoin wouldn't go below 6,000. And now it's popped back up about 11%. Uh, I can't predict how Bitcoin will ultimately fare in 2018 but I know it's um, definitely in the news a lot. And related to the price of Bitcoin, people are now thinking that institutional investors are jumping in, but they don't notice a price increase. It's yet to be seen whether a decline in Bitcoin is causing institutional investors to hoard or in the crypto world hold with HODL. But I think this is gonna be something that a lot of wealth managers will be talking about throughout the end of the year. And that's the news of the week. Welcome back to the show. Today, we're here with Thomas Nemo, who's the CEO of CyberFence, and very interesting subject and company that's very close to my heart, which is third-party risk. But before we get into third-party risk and an explanation of what that is again, uh, let's first talk about some of Thomas's background. Thomas is formerly in Army Ranger and Special Ops, and then also did risk and financial consulting work before starting this company. So Thomas, thanks for being here.
2: Thanks a lot for having me, Keith.
1: So Thomas, an American living in Paris.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's wonderful.
1: <laughs> so uh, I gave a brief bio, but I think you do a much better job um, giving a more complete version of yourself. So let's get into that.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, up to this point, it's been uh, probably a, one of the most indirect uh, routes uh, that one can take. Uh, I spent uh, five uh, years in uh, special ops in 1st Ranger Battalion, um, got a degree in classics, Latin and Greek, spent a few years in syndicate finance and then business consulting. Uh, at that time, we moved to France with my wife and uh, met a few consultants, and we started out as, uh, you know, just a regular consultancy. Uh, we built a prototype uh, for risk management, got a lot of enthusiastic feedback, and um, at one point we got together and decided we could either be a lifestyle consultancy or do something crazy, become a software company. So one guy, one of the, I think the brightest of the group, followed me out the door, and that's uh, Otto Schmidbauer. He's got a PhD in computer science, did his postdoc at Carnegie Mellon, and his specialty is machine learning. So we got together, built a minimal viable product, and then we were nominated for the Plug and Play Accelerator. And uh, now I'm here sitting with you and talking to your audience.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, that's how we met. We met at a Plug and Play event where I do mentoring for several of the practices, including InsureTech Enterprise 2.0, which you are um, in the midst of.
2: Yeah, we're in batch five of the InsureTech, and uh, it's been an absolute terrific uh, program for us. So... Thanks for being here again. I wanted to mention, because our
1: show has really become about innovation and disruption, but we've always had an underlying risk management um, theme and we still do, and that's why in most of our shows or all the shows we talk about cybersecurity, we talk about data privacy, but we really are interested in helping the listener know how to keep their business safe, their home safe, and if you're a corporate executive, how you stay safe with the regulators. And so I think today's show is really gonna be a lot about that. And it's actually a very interesting topic when you want to dive into it. Um, third-party risk in itself, which is a term that regulators use. So large banks, insurance companies, and now even healthcare systems, it really is more glorified than saying vendor risk, which was a term that most people really understand. But we get to the brass tacks, which is vendors, people who do things for you. That's what equates a third party. And we can talk about fourth parties later on as well and do an even deeper dive, but it's really about keeping this whole ecosystem safe.
2: Yeah, you're spot on. Um, A good way to get your hands around or your head around the concept is anytime you share your data or systems with a third party or a vendor, you actually start inheriting not only their strengths, but their weaknesses, And that inherited weakness is really an unknown until you assess it. Correct. And that's where CyberFence comes in. Exactly. And that assessment for any company, a standalone company, a small, medium-sized company starts at about $10,000. So the whole idea is who's going to foot that bill and who's going to take the time to actually complete that assessment. So you have to actually put enough uh, incentive on the table for people, value on the table, for people to actually move forward.
1: It's funny you mention that. Um, My consulting practice, Guardian Insight Group, where we are actually doing risk management and third party risk for other companies, large and small. The hardest thing to explain to a small, medium business that yes, an assessment can cost $10,000, and not just $10,000, if you're here in the Silicon Valley, actually much higher. So, uh, in fear of putting this part of my practice out of business, which is actually okay because that's not where we really want to necessarily spend most of our time with, but that's something very important. The ability to engage in third-party risk through risk assessments in a very economical way is something that I think many business owners, especially small medium business owners, should be listening to.
2: Yeah, oh, this is part of the reason we started out. We we really um, it was painful to watch companies struggle. And uh, our industry always says the first critical step is take an assessment. But if the assessment cost, if it starts at 10000 and then goes up, uh, for a small company, even a medium-sized company, after they've uh, spent that money and received the bad news that they're pretty much already cognizant of, uh, there's no funding left to buy the actual protections. And so that's where we're at. So um, we decided to commoditize the assessment uh, against uh, global standards, and then uh, allow companies to take this and push it out to their vendors and their customers to add value and gain market share, um, and then to unlock that savings. If you want to find out how to do these risk
1: assessments for free, stay tuned because we'll cover it in our upcoming segments. If you have any questions or comments, email us at info at svin.biz and we'll be right back.
0: For questions or comments on today's program, call 1 888 828 7846. That's 888 828 SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your hosts, Keith Koo.
1: Hey, Insiders. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. Today, joined by Thomas Nemo, who is the CEO of CyberFence. <coughs> So this week's question is related to what we talked about in the first segment. We talked about what is third-party risk, but the question is what are third-party risk regulations? So an overview of that is many regulated industries, banking, insurance, healthcare, they actually do have written policies on how you do business with entities like vendors. But it goes broader than that because if you say vendors, then what about pseudo or quasi- Um, entities, such as utility companies, which are both vendors but also monopolistic and also quasi-government related. So we broadened the term to third parties, but I don't think that resonates as much because it's really about the person or entity supplying you a service. Thomas, why don't you add to that?
2: Yeah. So every third party is either going to process, store, or transmit your data. And the question that you want to ask as a data owner is how are you securing my data in all three of those phases? And uh, in order to do that, you have to have, one, a standard, and two, a vehicle to ask these questions. And so that's basically the the essential uh, apparatus of understanding these, these questions.
1: Exactly. And so what point is having a regulation or a policy, or even worse in the banking world, we call it a guidance, which is neither a law or a regulation, but yet they... Banking regulators will hold your feet to the fire if something comes up regarding a data breach or something to that effect. Um, Out of those policies and regulations, risk assessments come out of that. Risk in itself as a discipline, risk management. But then to how do you capture the data elements related to doing business with each other? That takes the form of a risk assessment. Risk assessments can be, I say with air quotes, as easy as 300 questions. Or if you were to ever to download an industry template that encapsulates as many questions as possible, and I've seen them, it could be 3,000 questions. It becomes an overwhelming burden for both the supplier who has to respond to the questionnaire, but also to the business entity, bank, insurance company that has to issue the questionnaire.
2: Right. I would say the approach is uh, really important. So you want to understand, uh, are you trying to capture a moment in time? Are you trying to capture a real-time disposition of security? Uh, Those are two important questions, and they uh, tell you what vehicle you're going to use. So if you're going to use a self-assessment that's non-verifiable, you're probably going to capture a a subjective point of time. Um, But then when you verify it, then you have uh, more veracity. And then when you add automated data collection tools, then you can actually, those together, you can get a full scope of risk. And that's, I think, a more healthy approach. It also costs a lot more. There's a lot more time, money, and effort involved. And so that's the code that uh, everyone's trying to crack um, down to the small and medium-sized business level.
1: Right. And we look at lots of companies, large and small. And I would say that often both buyers and sellers come to us as well as a consulting firm. And often they get sticker shocked understanding how much it costs to engage Uh, a firm like ours on how to do these assessments. And I I was joking in the earlier segment that it's like putting myself out of business because you offer a completely free version of some risk assessment. I'm not really that worried because the part we do the analytics on for the actual uh, risk of doing business with each other goes beyond the scope of um, most risk assessments. It's actually uh, much more um, deep in things that incident management, change management, all these things that um, go beyond the security posture. But let's talk about your free assessment. What makes it free?
2: Well, we decided again, that the industry is saying that the first critical step is an assessment. If it costs too much or it's cost prohibitive, then no one's going to have the incentive to do it. So um, in this day and age, we're interconnected. We're all struggling with the same problems. We've got to know these answers. And so not only does it have to be free, but really, there has to be on the table an um, a, a incredible value, uh, upfront value, for a company to do this. And it's just not ticking a box. It's not uh, uh, keeping the fear away. It's really an opportunity for companies to differentiate themselves in this market. And I think this is a, a great opportunity for small and medium-sized companies to say, hey, I'm handling uh, an issue that's on the international agenda better than my peers. And I can prove it. So I think um, this is a great opportunity for small businesses to seize and really um, make a difference. And in this
1: example, the small-medium business is the buyer of the service. Correct. And where it's free is something that they would normally pay some group to do on an assessment. It's really when engaging a vendor or third party to invite them to respond to the questionnaire, which is, again, free to the buyer— the, the supplier then engages with your company.
2: Right. So, you know, through CyberFence apparatus, uh, we can identify a company's security and compliance gaps, and then by knowing all those gaps, that creates a spend plan. Um, and on this platform, a small company will know what its problems are, how much it's going to cost, and how to differentiate themselves. So after we've those gaps, then we want to give them next steps and then match a product to them. And right now, our go-to-market strategy is uh, with uh, cyber insurance, and that's the easiest one to match.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a hot area right now, definitely cyber insurance. So with companies like BitSight or Security Scorecard or Risk Recon, are you similar or differentiated from those?
2: Well, we're similar to that. We fight the fight, and those are good guys, and they do a good, good job. They just do it differently. So um, a lot of those companies, they observe uh, traffic outside the perimeter, they capture it and correlate it and then give you, in some kind of reference, point of reference, a score. Um, we are we take a different approach. We have a hybrid approach. So we start off with a verifiable self-assessment, and then we also have opt-in uh, data collection tools. So we give a full scope of risk um, that can verify one side or the other. That's great.
1: You know, one thing about this whole third-party risk um, process, which is, um, counterintuitives, it's, it's fear. And really, I, I use this mixed metaphor a lot of a uh, pack of ostriches. So let me give you a really good example. Several years ago, and I wrote an article on LinkedIn about it, uh, J.P. Morgan had a very severe breach. Six million accounts got hacked. And it got hacked because they had a nonprofit link on their J.P. Morgan site to donate to some you know, run for charity in Shanghai, China. So, nothing to do with China in itself, other than this event. And so, you click on JP Morgan, it says go donate here. When you click to that, it jumped to a third party payment processor to detect the donation. They had no security at all, and nobody monitored it for four or five months. And that's how the six million accounts got hacked. And this is JP Morgan, you know, one of the, I think JP Morgan floats between eighth and tenth largest bank in the world. Um, MUFG, where I worked, is the second largest bank in the world. No one can really anticipate this, but you can, because if you had the right controls and risk assessment, anybody would have seen that this third party vendor, this charitable donation site, is the one that was completely insecure.
2: Yeah, it's just a failure to ask a question. How do you secure my data, either in storage, uh, process it, or transmit it? If you're not asking those questions, you know, it's it's, it's, it's going to have a bad outcome.
1: So in this example, how would J.P. Morgan have engaged Cyber Fence through their, you know, and this was probably some piddly little $50,000 vendor. How would they have um, overcome that?
2: Well, as you said, the smallest companies are usually the root of the problem, like in Target. Uh, I think that was a five-person shop uh, dealing with uh, heating and cooling, and it took down an entire Uh, A retail giant. So um, you you really need to effectively and cost-efficiently push out this uh, assessment platform. And that's exactly what we do. Uh, Since it is free, it uh, removes the barriers and the friction. So you can push this out. uh, The customers can or your your vendors can use it uh, universally for themselves to uh, satisfy other audits. And so the the, the cost savings uh, is trickled down.
1: Well, let's get into the cost savings in the next segment. This is a super interesting topic, one I'm very close to. So you're listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Kuh, joined with Thomas Nemo, CEO of CyberFence. Any questions or comments on how to get a free assessment, email us at info.svn.biz, and we'll be right back.
0: For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith Koo. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host,
1: Keith Koo, and I'm joined today with Thomas Nemo, who's the CEO of CyberFence. So for this week's CyberTip, and this is woven throughout the show today, we've been talking about third-party risk. We talked about other examples, such as the J.P. Morgan breach, where uh, the hacker went through a very small vendor on a donation platform that you would jump to off your J.P. Morgan site. Uh, Thomas, in the last segment, talked about the Target breach, which was an HVAC vendor subcontractor who had physical access to the servers inside of Target's data centers. And I'm bringing up a very similar case, which is Nordstrom just had a breach that affected a lot of customers. Now, remember, they have 380 stores, and they have locations everywhere in 40 states, and the Reports from Nordstrom didn't give the exact root cause other than it was a contractor. Didn't say whether it was accidental or whether it was malicious. But this is something that is really important. So, Thomas, we had talked about what are some of the ways that Nordstrom could have prevented this.
2: Well, I say if if it's an insider threat, uh, one thing you must do is you periodically you have to review the roles and responsibilities and privileges of everyone who – Uh, manages data or systems. Uh, That's key. So um, one protocol is to, when someone leaves a company, within 24 hours, you need to lock down those privileges so they can't come home and remote in and uh, do some damage.
1: Right. And that's allegedly what happened with the Sony breach from a few years back, too. Yeah. So then transitioning that to the whole theme of today, which is risk management, third-party risk um, assessments. In terms of cyberfence and the marketplace, so you're going to do the risk assessment. So somebody would engage because of a Nordstrom's or a Target or a Sony or a J.P. Morgan can't keep them themselves safe, the best small medium business would probably have a hard time too.
2: Right. So uh, normally the, there are a couple of ways to engage cyberfence. One, if you go to the website, uh, it takes about 30 seconds to register. And within microseconds, you receive output, and that is a dark web scan. And that actually checks for leaks in your email accounts. And so that really punctures the myth that uh, cybercrime isn't interested in me. Well, if you have files, we detect you have files on the dark web. They're being reviewed, traded, and sold without your permission. That's a bad thing. And so being aware of that, um, now you want to actually go into more detail, start taking the self-assessment. And we've got you know, some other opt-in uh, data collection tools to give you a full scope of risk. So going to the website is the, you know, one way. The second way is you might be invited by your supplier. And uh, a large company with um, hundreds or thousands of suppliers would go to CyberFence and then push out invites. And they'll be received by all their vendors. And um, you know, what we actually recommend is that the corporate council write a letter, to all the vendors saying, this is our new business requirement. This is a free tool, no cost to you. You can use it uh, for your own business. And uh, we're going to ask you a series of questions to make sure that you're cyber competitive.
1: Yeah, that that would be, um, I've been the one authoring those letters before for many institutions. And I think usually the supplier is going to be um, opposed. I deal with this on both sides. I mean, my practice, I deal with companies on both sides, buyers and sellers. So really, it's what is CyberFence offering as the incentive for the supplier to engage other than the threat of the corporate council? Because um, I can tell you when it comes to large companies, um, you know, I'll just bring two up and I always use Cisco my old home, but Cisco to Microsoft, uh, no amount of corporate counsel between the two parties will compel large companies to do anything. But your platform which can handle anything. Really, the small, medium business owners. What's their incentive?
2: So the, the legal legal letter takes care of the law, and that's that's important. And we can't avoid that. The incentive, though, that, that's key. Uh, what you said, uh, because that's that's really answers the question of why should I care? Um, when small and medium sized companies go onto the platform, and we can aggregate uh, that uh, hundreds of companies have the same exact problem and need the same exact uh, solution. We can aggregate those consolidated users, go to the vendor, and drive down cost. So that's a huge motivator, a big incentive, that if you provide your information, we can uh, recommend a best fit product and actually drive down the cost from what you may get on the open market. I think that's good comments, right? Because
1: what happens on both sides, you're a small, medium business wanting to procure a technology or service. You don't necessarily have the funds to do a risk assessment, and you're going to cut corners, especially if you're not regulated. So now if you're regulated, there's an expectation you've done it before you engage with the vendor, and a lot of times you don't, but you're just too afraid to talk about it. On the small business or medium business supplier side, it's kind of the the inverse of that, which is um, I don't have the money to respond to the questionnaire because I'm a three-person shop. True story, I have a former venture capitalist who became a like you, a software supplier, who came to us asking for help, but didn't have the ability to pay for a risk assessment because they had no idea how much it cost. But they're staring down, um, having to respond to 500 questions. And this is from a company that isn't even regulated. So this is important to hit home on. You're offering a platform that provides this initial service for free to the buyer, and then an economical way for the supplier to get engaged when they ordinarily wouldn't be able to.
2: Correct. Um, not only for the small, small company, the, the buyer, uh, but also the seller. That's where you're getting to. Um, you know, the sellers, uh, they're looking for a marketplace that can identify a qualified buyer, um, and that's what we, that's what we match. So we think that's important for both sides.
1: Right. And I think that is what we talked about um, a little bit earlier, that the supplier understanding that their economic incentive is not just responding to this questionnaire, but also getting onto the platform, uh, getting into a a platform that shows successes, and that they will then become, in essence, a higher match for prospective customers.
2: Right. Uh, Now, for the small and medium-sized companies that go onto the platform, one, you know, they get that, uh, th- that benchmark, that baseline, and then throughout the year, they can show that delta of improvement. Anytime that they mitigate a risk or buy a product and implement it operationally, that shows up as a delta. So that's actually um, a very marketable characteristic of a company being cyber competitive. They can go to their next contract and say, look, I'm a small company. I don't have a lot of resources, but I'm trying a lot more than my peers, and we have the data to match them uh, against their peers to show that.
1: And I think you uh, told me um, off microphone a really good example that's happening in the insurance world, especially with brokers.
2: Yeah. So the, you know the brokers. Um, you know this data is very difficult to bring to the surface. It's very expensive, and honestly, not very many companies do it well. So we provide this service for free to brokers. Um, they can invite their their customers, and uh, when they complete the uh, assessment, the broker is notified, and they get a nice report. It's very visual. They don't need to know anything about cyber, but they have a basis of uh, risk management. They can have a risk-based discussion for about 20, 30 minutes, um, and then the broker can slide it across the table as an artifact. The next meeting leads to a sale. And uh, we actually had – we released a broker application about uh, three weeks ago, and on the third day, we had a broker, um, you know, uh, gave us feedback that it helped her sell a $20,000 premium. And that's a premium, not a policy. Yes. So that's, uh, that's, that's terrific feedback for us. Because it gives the uh, broker a chance not only to be um, a trusted advisor in this very difficult um, uh, sector, uh, because it takes a lot of time and effort to, to learn it and, and to keep up, but it uh, it also keeps the broker relevant, and that's what's important in this transaction. It keeps them relevant. They have actionable insight. They can calm the customer down, show them the roadmap for improvement, and then sell a policy.
1: One question I had is: Is this limited to the United States? You live in Paris,
2: right? So, it, we, we uh, the founders live in Paris. Uh, Our our wonderful team is actually based out of New York. We're an American company incorporated in Delaware. We're FCA approved, so we have an office in the UK and in the city of London. Uh, So that allows us to uh, really attack all three of these markets. However, our primary market is in the U.S.
1: Okay. And FCPA. I'm sorry, the FCA is the Financial Conduct Authority, which is the Fed of Europe. Or England, sorry.
2: Right. It it opens a lot of doors when we talk to carriers in, in the country.
1: Uh, how far have you gotten with the U.S. regulators?
2: Well, so, um, you know, we're really working through the carriers first. Okay. So we haven't really touched on on regulars. Um, the the regulars on a state level, they are very interested on how their state performs. And with some of this high-level data, they can then advocate for more funding.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't want to – I want to really stress um, how far you've gotten because I talk a lot about how the U.S. banking regulators – um, you can call them the creme de la creme, or you can say, actually, they're just the toughest in the land and the world. And so every other industry that's regulated isn't yet as strict as they are. So even to get through any regulator is a big deal.
2: Oh, yeah. And they, these converging forces are just accelerating. So you have the the U.S. HIPAA regulation for healthcare. care. Uh, you have the new New York Cyber Reg. And just recently, I think it was last week, uh, they approved, the DOD, Department of Defense, approved ahead of schedule uh, a mandate that all contractors have to evaluate themselves and every third party in their supply chain. That's uh, for companies of 10,000 and companies of 10.
1: Yeah, we we know it's coming. We, We know it's coming, especially since things like Equifax last year, Cambridge Analytica and Facebook this year, that every industry, as we become more interconnected and the convergence, which we talked about... Every industry that deals with systems and computers will need to have similar um, regulations.
2: Yeah, the question is, uh, what standard are we going to agree upon, and what is the mechanism? Uh, just last week, I, I, I met a, uh, a company in Plug and Play, and uh, the business owner told me that he had to complete 60 different proprietary assessments. And if you can imagine, the time, money, and effort that's required to shift to just complete those. Um, That takes away from selling.
1: Yeah, and that's not trivial. And I really wanted to stress that risk assessments are becoming, they're already a big deal. They're becoming more and more of a big deal. And no company, large or small, if you are subject to it, should ignore it. And if you need help with that, you can come to our website, svi.biz, or drop us an email at at info.svi.biz to find out more. And don't go away because we're going to wrap with Thomas Nemo of CyberFence, and you can learn more about how to get engaged for your company. And we'll be right back.
0: For questions or comments on today's program, call 1-888-828-7846. That's 888-828-SVIN. Now, back to Silicon Valley Insider. Once again, your host, Keith
1: Kuh. Welcome back to Silicon Valley Insider. I'm your host, Keith Kuh. And today's show, we've been joined by Thomas Nemo, who is the CEO of of Cyber Fence. Thanks again, Thomas. Glad to be here. And before I forget, I want to make sure the listener knows Fence is like defense, F-E-N-S-E. So the website would be Cyber F-E-N-S-E. So that's where you can go. Um, This whole show has really been about risk management, specifically third parties, and how CyberFence is a platform for buyers and sellers to more economically um, do risk assessments and then also find and match each other faster. So Thomas, I think it's been very compelling what you've been talking
2: about. We, we think it is too, because what we've seen in the market is, you know, it's what is the first step? What are the follow-on steps? How much is it going to cost? All those are uh, very difficult questions and, uh, you know, People have to keep the lights on. They have to sell. So we know this is an important priority, but um, we want to make it to where it is uh, actually part of the culture and it's so easy to use as if it were an appliance.
1: And I I think that's right. I mean, the culture, we we talked about Silicon Valley's culture, and we talked about how the secret to the early successes was really bright people, access to capital, free flow of ideas, the great weather in California, Um, but we also talked about how the lack of regulation in the 60s, 70s, and 80s really helped a lot of companies take off. Um, Once the bad stuff happened with the dot-com crash, Enron, um, Sarbanes-Oxley, and now even more stringent regulations because of FinTech and SureTech, that you will not be able to necessarily replicate that. The the days of Theranos, we hope, are gone, right? And this is where I, I want companies to pay attention because risk assessments are not just about checking the box, there's a purpose to them, it's to actually really figure out if your business buyer or seller is safe.
2: Yeah, and that's exactly what drives our model. Um, you know, it's our mission is to put on the table uh, disproportionate upfront value to incentivize companies to share their data. The rules and regulations, uh, starting with GDPR and all the laws that are actually in the state houses right now, ready to come out in the next year or next session, are going to make it very difficult um, for companies, uh, tech companies, to uh, collect data, wrap it up as their own, and then sell it without your permission or without compensation. So our model is to bring this data uh, to the surface uh, for free, and then since we don't own it, and nobody else owns it, push it through the pipeline for third parties to then add their value, again, for free.
1: And I think that's an excellent point because I think startups especially, because I'm picking on them right now, um, they need to understand if Facebook, Zuckerberg is in totally um, being attacked right now because Zuckerberg doesn't want to testify in Europe they face this and they spent, uh, I forget how many, I think they spent several hundred million dollars this year just on adding people to address the privacy issues. If they can't handle it, what hope does a startup or small business have unless they're actually thinking smarter and doing business differently? Because I know I sound like doom and gloom on this subject a lot because I'm so near and dear to it, but I'm trying to keep companies safe so that they are successful. And so having an innovative product such as CyberFence and to be able to engage for free as a buyer and very low cost or economical for a supplier is, um, should be very interesting.
2: Yeah, it's just not the novelty of being free. It's really how the models have to be um, starting now. Um, the approach is you can't own the wire from A to Z, and uh, you simply just can't uh, sell someone else's data. So uh, those changes are coming. Uh, I don't know how everyone else is going to change their model, if that's feasible. Well, California
1: states that by 2020, they'll have a more stringent policy than GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation of the European Union, which is the standard right now.
2: Yeah, so you have to think differently. Uh, You can't own the wire. You have to have a disproportionate upfront value for people to even care. So uh, those are the two uh, principles that we stand by. So,
1: Thomas, thanks. It's been great having you here. So let's shift a little bit into where is CyberFence at?
2: Right now, we're uh, operational, and uh, we're going through brokers and carriers to to gain market share to bring people, uh, companies, on the marketplace. Once we get a threshold of users, we'll then open up the, uh, expand the marketplace. And, of course, that'll make the platform more attractive and uh, attract more users, and we'll have a a virtuous cycle. Um, As far as fundraising, we're at pre-seed right now. And uh, then we'll open up the, the seed, and then in about 16 months, uh, we hope for Series A. Great. Well, it sounds like you have that all planned out. Uh, it's the first step to have a plan. <laughs> um, with the last minute we have left, what do you want to impart with CyberFence? Take the first critical step. Go to CyberFence, take an assessment, know where you're at, benchline yourself, and then start uh, you know asking questions, what can I do more? Again, it's uh, it's as if you're out in the woods with all your mates and a bear comes across you. You don't want to be the slowest one. And that's how it is in business. Cybercrime will attack the, the weakest link or the slowest one. You don't want to be that company.
1: And I agree with that. I think uh, the whole talk about regulation, uh, it's important, but really it's the regulators trying to protect themselves, saying that they told you so. And that is actually an after-the-fact type of activity. Engaging in a company like CyberFence and being proactive about it is where you will be ahead of that bear, so to speak. So, Thomas, thanks for being here today. Thomas Nemo, CEO of CyberFence. That's F-E-N-S-E. And if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at info at svn.biz. And we'll see you next week.
0: You've been listening to Silicon Valley Insider with Keith Koo. For questions or comments on today's program or to schedule a complimentary consultation with Keith about your business, call 1-888-828-SVIN. That's 1-888-828-7846, 888-828-SVIN.